This is the Faculty on Tap podcast, where our goal is to feature the amazing faculty here at USF St. Petersburg and highlight the things they're doing in research, teaching, and learning, and other fun things going on in their world. And we hope in the process to inform, inspire, and maybe even entertain a little bit. Now, this is episode two, and I'm Ricky Zager, and I'm instructional designer here at USFSP, and I'm one of the three hosts of the show. Hey, good afternoon, Ricky. And uh, I'm Tim Henkel, the uh, director for our Center for Innovative Teaching and Learning. And uh, it's uh, great to be back and uh, starting our first uh, faculty interview here. So I'm excited. And uh, how about you, Allison? Uh, so hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Allison Kimilevich. I'm the scholarly communications librarian at University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. And today we have Dr. Thomas Halleck with us, who is a professor of English Literature and Cultural Studies and the Frank E. Duckwall Professor of Florida Studies at USF St. Pete. So thanks for joining us, Dr. Halleck. Oh, thanks for having me. Only regret is that we can't meet in the beautiful Nelson Pointer Memorial Library, the most beautiful library in America. <laughs> <laughs> my, that's funny because my regret is that we're not meeting at a local establishment and having a brew with you and having some nice food. We're hoping to do that for some of the podcasts, but obviously we've got the pandemic going. So, you know, we're doing it virtually here, but, you know, we can guarantee you that it is five o'clock somewhere because it is, in fact, five o'clock here. Yes. And we encourage our guests to drink whatever makes them happy, whether that be an alcoholic beverage or not. Uh, let's quickly go around and just share what we're enjoying this evening. For those of you who saw the first episode, I, again, have the Florida hard seltzer. And uh, please, no mocking me for this, but it is fro it is local, okay? It's it's canned here from Three Daughters Brewing. Nice. So, Tom, uh, Thomas, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Sure. I have a uh, Sunshine City brewed right here in St. Petersburg. I had to stop and think whether to go with the Sunshine City or the Highlight IPA from uh, from Cigar City. But I did go with the right. Sunshine City. That's a good choice. That's a good choice. That's a good choice. Actually, I went with a little light IPA because, you know, summertime's coming upon us. So seven carbs uh, right here, three daughters, a uh, little floating dock. So enjoying that here. Uh, and I'm terrible and did not have a chance to pick up anything from a local brewery. Um, but I am drinking a fat tire out of my Copper Tail mug, which Copper Tail is my personal favorite local brewery. So. <laughs> Very nice. Very yeah. nice. So cheers, everybody. Cheers. Skull. Cheers. Cheers. Um, so, Thomas, do you mind telling us a little bit about um, the journey that brought you here to USF St. Pete? Um, I actually came here with my um, with my spouse, with my partner, Dr. Julie Buckner Armstrong, who is also a professor of English. Um, I we are an academic couple. We are the rare dual employed academic couple. And in fact, <laughs> the story of how I came to St. Petersburg is woven into the into a chapter of my forthcoming book, A Road Course in Early American Literature. She was hired to come here as an assistant professor of literature in St. Pete. I left a full-time job in Valdosta, Georgia, where she also was working. And we liked the idea of being in a more metropolitan area, but it was very, very difficult in the beginning to be a trailing spouse. I think it's hard on anyone. I had a lot more internalized sexism than I realized and being being the male and all of a sudden, hey, I'm making a third of the income. I didn't have a direction. I didn't have a focus. And um, actually that translates in the book. I started following Hernando de Soto through Florida. And that was really to try and get to know the state of Florida because in the beginning I was just absolutely miserable here. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> 
I like I like the honesty. Yeah. Yeah. I like well, the honesty. Well, that honesty got me into a lot of trouble. And one of the things I've been trying to deal with in this book <laughs> is how we come to grips with as as a white male. How have I come to grips with my whiteness? How have I come to grips with my with my gender, with my own gender privileging? Because when you teach literature, you deal with people from all different walks of life. So how do you process that? And, you know, a lot of literary scholars want to kind of pretend as if they're morally perfect beings, the sort of holier than thou. And, you know, we absolutely, we absolutely are imperfect. And the point of this book, The Road Course, is how literature can kind of nudge you towards a different self. Well, that's really cool. And I know we're we're excited to hear more about that. And these are some deep questions that you're that you're offering up and to sort of contrast that what we've also been doing with our podcast is we've been doing some quick rapid fire questions so one of the things that we're doing with our guests and we actually did it with our with all of the hosts uh, on our first episode is just going fa- rapid fire with four or five questions here so just to break it up we want to do this real quick with you and we'll see uh, what your quick answer is and we'll move on to the next one are you ready for this sure all right, so the first question, this is a dangerous one. Are you a cat or a dog person? Dog person. Um, dog person. <laughs> There's an um we'll come back to. It, I don't know. Yeah, worth exploring. You, you get quite a few. There might be one person on this panel uh, uh, today that's a cat person. Well, right we won't now, talk I about her. I have a cat, right now, not but... a dog, but we're actually looking for a dog. So if anyone has a dog that is about 35 pounds out there in <laughs> podcast land that maybe wants to send our way, please look us up. <laughs> I love it. Exploring new avenues for the show already. I'm loving it. That's our audience. All right, Thomas. My next question for you. This is also a a contentious one sometimes. Wine or beer? Uh, hmm. It's actually more um, alcohol or coffee. I more than I. I you know I come from a long line of alcoholics, and I always do actually have to tap the brakes on both alcohol and wine but i do hold to the adage that um right drunk edit sober so how about that (laughs) (laughs) i like it that's not a bad one to go by and coffee is also yummy so i'm with you on that all right we are all in the midst of a pandemic we don't leave the house much so the next question is what are you watching on netflix uh the taco chronicles fantastic show yeah, there's only six of them, and it's about different kinds of tacos and the way the way they are a reflection of Mexican life. It's also an opportunity for me to keep up my Spanish and keep my Spanish up in practice. All right, and it's also an opportunity to prep you for getting some tacos for dinner, which sounds amazing. Uh, right about you know, now. the problem is actually once you've had some Mexican tacos, it's just yeah. you really do have to. Like, it's it's tough to go back. You have to head up to Pinellas Park for some good tacos in Pinellas County. No, I'll be I'll be seeking some of that advice after the show. All right, and finally, if there is a podcast or maybe a book you're reading that you'd like to share, right now I'm reading uh, Terra Alta by um, by an author, a Spanish novelist named Javier Cuevas. Very interesting. It's a whodunit. It's a story. It's a murder mystery, but the subtext is whether or not the murder is going to be investigated by the Spanish authorities or by the Catalan local police. So the author, Cuevas, is using the murder as a way of getting at some of the splits going on in Spain. But it also is a um, great, um, it's a great page turner. And of course, you, because it is a crime novel, you, you get a lot of the juicy terms. And, you know, it's important to learn how to have an ordinary street conversation in Spanish. And this novel, Terra Alta, does provide that. <laughs> 
It'll help you with that. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. All right. Well, I'll have to check that one out. Thank you so much. All right. I think I'm going to hand it over now to Tim. You have some questions? Yeah. I want to actually get back to that book and, and some of the journeys. I mean, I think, Thomas, anytime uh, a new book comes out, it's always worth celebrating. So it's great to get to share that, especially uh, this one, uh, Road Course in Early American Literature, Travel and Teaching from Atlanta Amherst. And uh-huh. So just want to say uh, congrats on this coming out because uh, it's, as you sort of alluded to, uh, while it's about a journey, it seems like it's also been a journey to get to, to this point as well. And so I thought maybe just start and share a little bit about what inspired you first to start off on this project initially. Well, this book was hard, so I need to open a beer. <laughs> there you Perfect. go. Cheers. Yeah, thank Cheers. you. It started out uh, traveling through Virginia with um, my spouse, uh, Dr. Armstrong, Julie, and we were driving around with the Rand McNally map, and we noticed a little town on the map called Solomon's Store. And I don't know if anyone has ever read Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, but the novel ends with the main character, Milkman Dead, winding up when I think his fan belt breaks in a town called Solomon's. And there's a redheaded lawgiver which we thought, that's got to be Thomas Jefferson, the redheaded Solomon, you know, the lawgiver. And we wondered, was Morrison kind of digging on Jefferson with, um, with, with this story? And so I started trying to research whether or not Solomon's store in the novel was a real place. And it turns out it is and it's not. And that led me to the question of how do you travel into a literary place? Is it real or is it imagined? And that was the question. And in the end, I think I came back to, in literature, when you're traveling into a real or imagined place, you're trying to get at some deeper level engagement with the culture. As I said, trying to move yourself towards another state. Right. Oh, that's that's, that's really interesting. I mean, A, just picking up on the lyrics and that moment you found yourself in. But I actually wanted to circle back because you said, you know, you and Julie were traveling with this a map, right? And what yeah. a lost art that is. I mean, I remember yeah. the days of having that fold out map and trying to find your way and just going off on the blue. And, you know, yeah. it's not something that you would necessarily do. Well, isn't it the same you know, way, I'll right? Throw that out, I'll throw that back out to the back, back out to the interviewers. Doesn't the blue dot scare you a little bit? You know, the fact is that every single movement of your day can now be tracked by Verizon in my case. Uh, oh, yeah. When I get the uh, my monthly yeah. log of where I've traveled this month and how many steps I've you know taken the yeah. places every place I've been you know is yeah it's interesting yeah. and it's also hard for me because I can't stand the directions on your phone because I wear hearing aids and my Bluetooth picks up on the phone and so I have Siri's voice coming from inside my head <laughs> that is frightening <laughs> yeah, computer, that's frightening get yeah. out of my skull <laughs> and so i do kind of like turning off the blue dot i really do like as much as anything trying to figure out where i am right trying to orient yourself right. like rem said right that's carry great. a compass to <laughs> move around <laughs> yeah and I think I think the digital age and this information where we've sort of curated things and we go we all go to the place that is most likely that we would like and you do fall off the opportunity of finding these new gems like you know by looking at a map and just finding them we're sort of already moving to places that either you know our past search history or what we're searching for tells us where we want to go 
And so I think that's a fascinating way to look at it, travel, traveling and just looking at places and going, what is that? Let's explore it. So would you say that's sort of an analogy for your book itself? Is that sort of the journey you went on creating the book? Yeah. Or how did I know you had the beginning there, but what was the journey of, of writing this book yeah, like for following you? following literature leads you to really, really fascinating stories and fascinating places. Um, Julie and I started following the trail of Hernando de Soto landed in Tampa Bay um, in 1539 and then through his first season or the first uh, first part of his campaign he traveled up to Tallahassee and that whole every step of that journey has been mapped along. Hernando de Soto didn't just follow sort of blank spots in the map he followed pre-existing Native American routes pre-existing Native American roads and these roads then became railroads um, instead of bridges people used to forge across rivers. So we ended up, we found ourselves in some of the oldest, quirkiest, weirdest places of Florida. And it was really, like I said, just a great way to get to know the state. In another case, we started following the Lewis and Clark Trail backwards. It was in uh, 2006. And so it was the bicentennial of the return trip of Lewis and Clark. And Julie and I stumbled across the Nimi Poo or the Nez Perce Trail and the Legends of Coyote and Coyote being the great trickster of the Pacific Northwest, well, of course, of most of many Native American religions. And it was really a great journey into Native American conceptions of space. I couldn't have planned it. But I think following the literature takes you to really cool spaces. That's really neat. Um, I am curious, you know, because since the book is really a combination of like creative writing and history um, and, you know, scholarship, how are you um, how are you picking the creative pieces, like the poems, the music, the paintings, and historical documents? What thank you, Allison. What I tried to do is replicate an American survey to eighteen sixty and think about how would I personally convey what I feel most is most important as a teacher in the literature of eighteen sixty. So I was going for geographic and literary and historical coverage as well. So if there was a whole then I would try and fill that. For instance, I did travel through Philadelphia mainly because we had to we had to go through um, Benjamin Franklin's footsteps a little bit because if you're going to take a course in American literature, you're almost certainly going to read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. That's fascinating. And I guess also balancing historical documents versus contemporary pieces about the place. I mean, were you more focused on than anything prior to 1860, or did you lean on some more current writing as well? well? Yeah, what I found when I was traveling into these literary, literary spaces is that the legacy or the critical history of the literary text is never taken apart from the literature. You're not only reading a work of literature, but you're also reading its history unconsciously. So if you read Nathaniel Hawthorne, or if you read Thomas Jefferson, you whether you know it or not, are reading all the cultural baggage that Nathaniel Hawthorne or, or, or Thomas Jefferson or Phyllis Wheatley have accrued over the years. And so one of the things that I learned in the process of writing in the book is that you really have to pick apart, you have to retrace into the past all the different strands of criticism, all the different ways that this person has been thinking about, has been thought about over the years. Does that make sense? No, that's very interesting. I wouldn't have thought about it that way. That's really yeah. cool. It was an education for me, too, yeah, because I always sort of used to ignore that stuff where they gave you the history of scholarship. And I began to realize that as scholars, we, we always 
we're carrying around the baggage of every scholar that's gone before us. And a lot of times we don't acknowledge it. It's like a legal case, right? When Allison, in some senses, isn't a legal decision nothing but the accrual of a bunch of earlier precedents? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and the same is true with literary criticism, that it's really, we're just, we're just weighing in on previous literary judgments. And you can't really go in there with some sort of pressure washer and strip it away. You know, you have to work through it. So one of the things that um, I've really enjoyed w about working with you, Thomas, is that you have this passion for subject matter. We've worked on a couple of videos where you've recorded them, I've done some editing, and I see this passion. It's very palpable, and, I, and it's you, your students, I'm sure, get just like our listeners are getting it right now. You are passionate about these subjects, and it comes through. So while everyone else and other faculty members who may be listening to this podcast may not have the same passion for the same subject matter, they may have that passion and probably do have it for other things and may be thinking about writing a book. And I know you had talked in the pre-interview about some of the pitfalls. So I was wondering if you had any advice for anyone who's like, I'm passionate about this and I want to write a book, but how do I start? And what are some maybe some tips to help them along that journey, if you wouldn't mind? Well, the first thing I would say is um, get some friends together and start a writing group and get the people that are at about your level and meet every two weeks, once a month, Hold your feet to the fire, and that is the best thing that I have. My group started out at the old Globe Coffee House. It was me, Onda Peterson, who teaches creative writing, Heather Jones, also creative writing, um, Julie Armstrong, and then several people have kind of come in and out. Um, a uh, Tiffany Cheneville, Eric Deggins with The Times, and now an NPR, John Wilson, formerly with, with, with the Tampa Bay Times. And we used to meet once a week at the Globe. We did not drink, by the way. That was a rule. You did not drink. You, you only coffee. And having that writing nice. group was instrumental. And then thinking about who's your community and who's your audience and finding your niche. No matter what your passion is, there are people that share your interest in it, whether it's, whether it's model trains or Toyota Corollas or early American literature. You're always going to find your niche. I'm very fortunate that I have a group called the Society of Early Americanists. In June, I'm going to be the Scholar of the Month for the Society of Early Americans. Yay! Congrats! Congrats! Yes. That's awesome. And then I'm also a member of the group called the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment, and they led me to narrative nonfiction and writing about place. And having these academic subgroups really gave me a kind of corner or niche from where I could begin to write. So I think definitely knowing that your audience is out there and tapping into your community. No great book, no book period, I think, ever emerges in isolation. Dr. Armstrong, Julie, read every single chapter more than once that, that I wrote. And then my prose posse really gave this, a, gave this a look over. So it's almost a group. By the end time you get to it, even though it says my name on the front of the book, it's a group project. And that's true for a lot of books. You know, the Bloomsbury group, it was Virginia Woolf, Leonard Woolf. John Maynard Keirs, Letton Strachey. There is no such thing as a writer in isolation. That's a myth. So that's, you know, really fascinating, Thomas, because that's sort of, as I think about that and I hear it and I agree completely, I start wondering how do you bring that into your courses, right? How do you, you know, if that's how writing happens, how do you teach that way? That's, yeah. I am fortunate to be the faculty advisor for Sigma Tau Delta at, uh, 
at the at USSAP, and that's the English Honor Society. And we get together once a week, and we talk about one another's writing, and we talk about developing a community, developing a cohort. And it's so important. When I get a group of really outstanding English majors, every four or five or ten years, you get a group that really stands out. And one of the things that they always have are the, is the peer group, are the cohorts, are the collaborators. And it's really remarkable because in a lot of it's magical. Because in many times, the students come from entirely different walks of life, very, very different political orientations, political backgrounds, and yet they come together for maybe a love of literature. And then when they're done with their English major, they go their separate ways. But I think what made their experience as an English major at USF St. Pete magical was that community that, that they found. And that's one of the things we're always trying to develop in English at USF St. Pete is that community. Yeah, I that a little bit with consolidation, but that's a whole other story. Uh, that's a whole other podcast we can have sometime. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it is interesting though when I think about the community aspect too, because it really it is key. I think what we do uh, is always better in community. I think we're drawn in community. I think it's part of our almost DNA aspect. And yeah, you know, I've been thinking about. I don't know if you've thought a little bit about as we look towards our current situation or even towards the fall, how do we foster some of that community and still keep that going um, amongst this virtual distance, socially spaced out world? Wow, it's so important, especially one of the courses that I teach is nature writing. And typically I take students out, I take students on an overnight sail. Many of our students, even they grew up in Tampa Bay, had never spent the night on a sailboat before. And the bonds that they form when they're spending 48 hours together or even 24 hours together in close quarters with no cell phone really cements their intellectual activity as well. Because they start talking to one another, they confide in one another, they have the trust that leads to really rigorous academic exchange. And I am fearful about losing that sense of space and place and community when we go online. As Ricky knows, I'm a big fan of teaching online. There's a, there's a huge amount that we can get out of teaching online learning, but there's also no substitute for having 15, 20, 25 people all in the same room, caring about the same subject, having read, having read the same book. That energy mm. can't be duplicated, mm. I think, over the internet. Right. You know, there's this sort of battle between maybe research and like, you know, learning and teaching and learning. And I know you, you'd, you had sort of given a good explanation of sort of that battle that you've gone through. And maybe if you'd like to talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. In a lot of cases in the road course, I am writing about books that I teach all the time. But one of the advantages of teaching at USF St. Pete is that I've been able to close the gap between research and teaching subjects. Mainly, I teach where I am. I focus on Florida as part of the, as part of the professor in Florida studies, but then also in my English classes, teaching nature writing classes. We don't need to go to John Muir's California. We don't need to go to Henry David Thoreau's Massachusetts's Walden, even though I do make them read Walden. You can explore <laughs> the nature right in our backyard. And that a lot when by exploring making that the subject of my research, it becomes easier to teach. Likewise, I'm an early Americanist by training, and I'm very fortunate that there's this whole raft, there's this enormous load of literature from early Florida that hardly anyone has touched. 
And so I have a great research subject that I can involve students in. And that's been a real privilege and joy to involve them in the research process. It sounds almost to me, you know, just when I'm listening to you talk, that it's very similar to your your uh, statements about writing a book. You know, research can be very similar, right? You got to figure out what's your niche, how does it work with your class, how does it, how is it going to help your teaching? So if you if you dig into it and find places like you said that there aren't people aren't really going that way, so it's wide open for you to do things in. And I think if people really look at it that way instead of just what's something that I can research you know, for research itself, what's something that I can narrow down and help my instruction and help my teaching as well? It sounds kind of like what you did. Absolutely. And I probably will get kicked out of the English department for saying what I'm about to say. (laughs) But English doesn't necessarily have the same economic or even social value as, say, research in psychology or research in medicine. Nothing I do is going to call is going to bring a cure for cancer. Right. There's going to be no medication that I am going to discover in my writing workshop that is going to help people and make a lot of money. Instead, I think literature is much more training someone to think in a certain way and also take you to a certain kind of being to have a more thoughtful engagement with the world, which, by the way, is why the study of literature is a great thing, because it makes you a better lawyer. It makes you a better doctor. My, my, my own therapist, I go to family therapy, I'll disclose that, was an English major. And I think his being an English major prepared him to be a better, better psychoanalyst, a better therapist. Likewise, uh, my son's pediatrician also, I knew I really wanted her as a pediatrician when I told her our name was Virgil and she recognized that it was the Latin poet <laughs> that we were referring to. So when she caught the literary <laughs> reference, I knew that, okay, this person is probably has the good training that I think English is a part of. So that leads to what point does English serve? Look, you've got to keep the knife sharp. You've got to play the horn. And you can't teach people how to play the saxophone if you're not playing the saxophone yourself, right? If you're not researching and writing and publishing, how am I going to teach other people how to research and write and publish? So kind of a... Well said. Kind of along um, those lines, I I have to, as a scholarly communications librarian, I always am interested in scholarly impact. Um, And you you adjusted a little bit there, but with your new book, um, what kind of impact are you hoping that a project like this has, especially since you have the book, right, but you also have corresponding bibliographic essays? Mm -hmm. Is that, so I guess what kind of, um, what are you really like hoping the impact of that to be? Yeah, scholarly impact is always really, really tough for English. It's kind of a librarian's term. And I know firsthand that the book that I have that has the high impact rating might be serving the least purpose in the general (laughs) scheme of things. It's kind of scholarship for scholarship shake. It's it's the scholarship that's doing nothing than other than generating other scholarly articles. (laughs) Does that make sense? So to say that the impact of this particular book is high I'm not sure. Oh, but I mean, we could, oh, sorry. What I really think is going to be the value of this is that I am trying to bring together creative nonfiction, telling a good story, and literary scholarship. And what happened is that sometime around the 1950s and the 1960s, literary criticism and scholarship became a kind of analysis. It became much more close in writing to the social scientists, sciences. We were told not to use the first person, don't use I, 
somehow we were writing about literature in an objective, analytic way. And of course, that's nonsense. You don't pick up a book for the literary, for the for the objective, analytical. You pick up you pick it up because it has some sort of personal connection to you. And what I'm really trying to do is bring back this through storytelling, this personal connection we have through literature. How do we start writing from the gut again? Right. Yeah, I, I like that bringing the the human the humanity back to the humanities, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, sort of, How do we bring the uh, humanities back yeah. to the humanities? Thank you, Tim. Right, yeah, that is yeah. the answer to Allison's question. Right. I know, and that's what I was going to say. It can be impact broader than, you know, what we what we deem as scholarly impact, you know? Um, I think it's important that, to look at that. That impact isn't going to show in some metric or some citation rate or anything like that. Right, right. Think. Looking outside of it, you know. Yeah. So I know, Thomas, uh, last um, last fall you received a Fulbright grant, right, to teach in Mexico? Yes. Do you mind um, telling us a little bit about your experience with uh, teaching in Mexico and teaching USF students as well? It was a once-in-a-lifetime fantastic experience. Every academic should aspire to have a Fulbright, keep trying, apply for those grants, because they really do change your life. It is absolutely the cherry on top of the sundae. It was a wonderful experience. I was at the Universidad de las Americas Puebla, or La UDLAP, as they affectionately call it. Puebla is about 120 miles, about 100 miles southeast of Mexico City, more to the east, southeast of Mexico City. And I was able to line up USF St. Pete students with UDLAP students. And they had to describe a place that was important to them. And what made that really interesting is that at first they sort of took it for granted that people understood one another's associations. But as they dug further into their essays, they had to get to the strangeness. So for instance, in Mexico, it's very common for someone to live at home until your late 20s. Typically in the United States, this is changing, but until very recently, you're kind of supposed to move out around 21, 22, 23 and leave your parents house but in mexico nope you stay at home until you're married another one um uh halloween is very different it, both mexicans do celebrate halloween but of course that thursday before all hallows day is the beginning of the one of the biggest festivals of the year in mexico the dia de los muertos dia de muertos and so to talk about the difference between halloween and the day of the dead in Mexico was a great experience. And to get students to think about how you render your place for another person. And that was a really great experience for both USF St. Pete students, but also for Mexican students. What are the preconceptions you have? What do you take for granted? And then what do you have to explain to someone else as you render your place? If you're gonna describe Florida, if you're gonna describe a beach in Florida, what do you already know? And as you write this up for someone else, what then do you have to flesh out? That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a really fantastic experience. <laughs> Sorry. Can we add about that? I'm kind of struck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of struck in the moment um, with with the culture sort of uh, that we are in now. We have this bite-sized culture this meme culture this 
one little picture and phrase represents an entire society, an entire group of people, an entire thought process. And it, and it seems to me really when, when we're talking about literature, one of the super important things about this and then about this Fulbright that you did is it is forcing people to see the complexities. It's forcing us to look deeper into something, into a person than just this meme culture. And I think it's so important, maybe more, you know, you're diminishing literature. And I know in sort of a self-deprecating way with literature, and I know it's, it's a passion for you, but I think the importance of what you're doing in these times is even is even a larger scale because we deal with so many people who have these these truncated little images and views of a, a group of people based on some picture they saw with words rather than really getting into the depth of characters and the depth of understandings of people. So these two things together, just it just struck me as a very powerful thing that is that has to affect these students in ways that you may not see, they may not see in the moment even, but I think it's an amazing. These are amazing projects, and I'm exci- and I'm excited about what you're doing and your passion is. It's it really comes through here, and I really I, I just want to say I appreciate that because I think in this this world we need more. Thank of that. you. One of the things we said we set it up as a Pueblo. It's called the uh, PuebloJournal dot uh, com. PuebloJournal dot com or dot org. I forget which one. But um, we said we're trying to change the world one tortilla at a time, and that was exactly what we're trying to do. Ricky <laughs> is come to more nuanced understandings of one another. So I had one student from Michoacan, which is where Coco is set, two little villages in, in, in Michoacan. And she talked about her own experiences growing up in Michoacan and celebrating Day of the Dead. And even though she's Mexican, she doesn't really do the ceremony at home. And what are all the different permutations of Dia de Muertos? One of the great questions that I had is that if you had an uncle who was an alcoholic and you were setting up a shrine, did you set out a shot of tequila for him, even though you knew he couldn't, he didn't do well with his liquor? Now, the answer is actually yes. You give it to him now that he's dead. But what are the different nuances? What are the different permutations? How are cultures different. Look, there are all sorts of different Mexicans. There are all sorts of different Catholics. There are all sorts of different whatever. And I think that was one of the things that I was really trying to get at, is how do we break down and get beyond meme culture, Ricky, which is exactly it. How do we come to more nuanced understandings? One thing that really surprised me about dealing with Mexico is trying to translate Mexico to the United States is in many cases, once it got out of a slot of U.S. perception or understanding, people didn't care. So people in the United States always wanted to know what Mexicans thought about Donald Trump. And of course, I'm not getting political, I'm just saying the obvious. Mexicans have obvious feelings about Donald Trump. But honestly, for the most part, it didn't come up all the time. That wasn't necessarily, that wasn't their idea of Mexican culture, which makes perfect sense. They don't, we were several thousand miles, we were 1,500 miles away from the border wall between the United States and Mexico. I couldn't get people in the United States interested in Mexican rock and roll. That's a thing. There are all there's this great tradition of Mexican rock going back to the 70s and 80s, and people in the U.S. just didn't bite because it didn't fit into their preconception or Mexican film. But people wanted to hear endlessly about Cinco de Mayo, Dia de Muertos. 
the cliche thing. So how do you get people past, past cliches? It's almost, it's very, very difficult. But it's so extremely important, and yeah, yeah. I, I agree, it really is. And yeah, I saw. I like how you were describing that Fulbright and uh, that you got, and as a cherry on top. And I think you have another cherry coming with a sabbatical um, that you have in front of you there. So I was wondering, if just uh, to wrap things up, to just share what you're uh, having big plans or what you're looking forward to in this uh, time. Well, video killed the radio star, and coronavirus killed my sabbatical. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't no. know what to say. <laughs> I am translating an epic poem called La Florida by a Franciscan named um, uh, Alonso Gregorio de Escobedo. He was in Florida from 1587 to 1593, and I was going to go to Spain and dig into the religious context of the poem, to provide more of an introduction, get my head in the language so I could translate better, but that's not going to happen. I will continue to work on the sabbatical, but I am also co-editing along with my um, colleague and friend Chris Mindel in Geography Florida Studies, a special issue of the Journal of Florida Studies, and we are focusing on the Florida Trail. So please everyone go out to www.journalofloridastudies.org and find the call for papers. We are looking for essays, and we're using the Florida Trail as a transect for understanding the history, culture, landscape of the state. So I will be hiking a lot of the Florida Trail, and that is gonna qualify as research, and I am blessed. Yes, there, there's no better job than what we get to do. I agree. No. That's it's absolutely just... wonderful, gosh. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And, you know, with that, I think it's it's time. All good things must come to an end, they say. And hopefully this has been a good thing. I know we've enjoyed having you for sure. Um, this is orders of magnitude better than our first podcast, which was just the three of us. So having you here and your energy, I think, really, really helped us out. And uh, really excited about when, when we're going to be putting these podcasts out and interviewing our next faculty member. So we'd love to thank you for coming. And also, if you'd like to you know, plug your book, when's it going to be? When's it coming out? How do we get it? Um, and how do we try to absorb some of this passion that oh, you have? Oh, thank you. The book is going to come out in February 2021. It is a road course in early American literature. We will be having, it'll be going on advanced sale in October and sometime around the beginning of next year, spring next year, keep your eye out for a book launch. Thank you very much for supporting it. And thanks to the libraries. No. Thanks to the library for keeping, being our lifeline for research and writing and reading. You guys have been saviors. Thank you so much, Thomas, for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. And it's a fascinating conversation. We've had a great time with you, and we will see everyone and all of our listeners. We know we're going to have a lot of them next time on Faculty on Tap. Cheers. Oh. Let's go. Cheers. Cheers.